Welcome to the New Books Network. Meteorites, megavolcanoes, and plate tectonics, the old forces of nature, have transformed Earth for millions of years. They've now been joined by a new geological force, human beings. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're always glad to hear from you. Email us at vanleerideas at gmail.com. We're pleased to welcome Mark Maslin to the show today to talk about his new book, The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene. Mark A. Maslin is a professor of Earth System Science at the University College London and a Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Scholar. He's the author of eight books and has written for The Times and The New Scientist. Mark Maslin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. It's a pleasure to be on. Mark, before we get to your book, tell us a bit about yourself. Was there a person or an event or an idea that was particularly influential in your own intellectual development? Well, I'm of a certain age, so when I was growing up, and some of the listeners won't believe this, there were only three TV channels to watch, and of course, I was a child and actually saw the first series of Life on Earth with David Attenborough, and this was beamed into our rooms by BBC and made us suddenly realize how big and exciting the world was. And also, and so that helped me firstly decide I wanted to be a scientist. And I had no idea what type of scientist. And then, of course, my poor family, they had to put up with two brothers. And on a wet, rainy London Sunday afternoon, what do you do with them? And so what they used to do was drive us up into London and literally throw us into one of the museums. So my favorite, of course, was the Natural History Museum. And of course, secondly, was the Science Museum. So those twin influences in my childhood made me convinced that I was going to escape home and go to university and become a scientist. And then the rest is history. Well, it's history and it's a testament to those who say television has no influence on us. Uh, It's very interesting that your first uh, concept of science came from a, a wonderful TV series. So. It's born fruit. And let's turn to your book. What is the Anthropocene and when did it begin? So the Anthropocene is this wonderful concept which has been developing over the last two decades. And what it says is, if we look at the current world, actually humans now can be classed as a geological superpower. We have so much influence over the planet that we're controlling the environmental destiny of the planet and the evolutionary destiny of many of the organisms on our planet. Now, the question, though, is when did it start? And this is where we get into science. I'd like to say debates, but actually they're just knockdown fights because the idea is geologists split up time into distinct chunks And these clearly are marked by a golden spike, a change in either the biology on the planet or the actual climate. And so what we've been doing is trying to look for that sort of like start point 
to start what is called the Anthropocene Epoch. And this has actually generated huge numbers of arguments and lots and lots of papers in the literature. So technically, I would say, absolutely, I can show you lots of evidence to show you that we are in the Anthropocene, but the geologists haven't got round to actually defining the Anthropocene Epoch. Mm -hmm. Okay. So even though it's controversial, you think the decision is clear that this is the Anthropocene period. Well, I will give you some examples of our impacts. So if we take the nitrogen cycle, not something that people necessarily consider every day, we currently fix more nitrogen out of the atmosphere than the natural world. The last time the nitrogen cycle was that disrupted was about 2 billion years ago. If we look at, say, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we have put an extra 48% of CO2 into the atmosphere in the last 100 years. We've doubled, almost tripled methane in the atmosphere. If we then look mm. at, say, land use, if we take all the land on the world, including Antarctica, 25% of that we currently use to live on and for our animals and our livestock and our agriculture. And finally, if we look at the extinction rates, we humans have already increased the background extinction rate maybe a hundred, a thousand fold, and we're worried that that's going to increase into the future. So we've had a massive impact on the planet. And the final one that I always leave to last, which is the deeply shocking one, is if we take all the land mammals and we weigh them now, 30% are actually humans. There's 7.8 billion of us. We weigh quite a lot. But then 67% of that weight of mammals is our livestock and our pets. Just 3% of the weight of mammals are all the natural animals that David Attenborough goes out on films beautifully for us to watch. So we've reduced that just down to 3% of the weight of all land mammals. Okay, those, those numbers are very impressive. Uh, you, your book is organized around four main themes. Um, tell us about some of them. They're very logical. They take us to where you lead, so... Please go ahead. That's okay. So the lovely thing about writing this book is I wrote this book with Simon Lewis, a dear friend and colleague who is an ecologist who works on tropical forests and deforestation. And we put this book together because we'd written uh, a really important paper in Nature called Defining the Anthropocene, which basically set out for everybody in science to say, look, this is why we think we're in the Anthropocene. This is all the evidence. And these are the possible start dates. And then uh, an editor contacted us from Penguin and said, look, would you turn this into a book? And what's really interesting is that we decided that the main part of the book is that we would go through human history and actually define what humans had done in the past and how much environmental impact they had. And we got to the end of the book when we'd written it together and Simon sat in my room and he sort of looked at me and said, Mark, we've redefined human history. And I went, yeah, didn't mean to do that. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because we suddenly realized, and 
I'm sure historians are going to be horrified by this, but we suddenly realize you can split human history up into five distinct periods of human society. So if we start off, we have the hunter-gatherers. The hunter-gatherers uh, spread out from Africa uh, 200,000 years ago, and they then actually had a big impact because they actually started to kill off all the megafauna. So there's no mammoths because humans basically slaughtered them all. We then have that agricultural revolution about 13,000 years ago, and we move into an agrarian-type society which spreads out across the whole of the world. And it's not until the sort of uh, expansion of the Europeans in the 15th and 16th century that we then switch into a new mode of operation called mercantile capitalism. I mean, we have the birth of capitalism, we have the expansion of global slavery, we have colonization and all the issues that go with that. And then by the 18th century, 19th century, we suddenly have the Industrial Revolution, we move into the industrial capitalism, and then finally, post-Second World War, we have this great acceleration where uh, the uh, global economy takes off, driven by consumer capitalism. So we end up, the whole of history can be defined by these five, hunter-gatherer societies, agrarian societies, mercantile capitalism, industrial capitalism, and of course, then finally, you then have consumer capitalism that we all know and love at the moment. And I think the interesting thing is each one of these steps, and some people call them progress, but it depends who you are, whether you happen to be a winner or loser in this, has some rules. So history seems to have rules. So every time there's one of these sort of like revolutions, global population increases massively. The amount of energy each person uses increases markedly. And also, the amount of knowledge we have gained globally as a species also jumps up. But unfortunately, every single time, the amount of impact, the environmental impact on the planet starts to escalate until we get to the huge impacts that we're having at this moment. Tell us about the role of feedback loops in driving global change. Ooh, feedback loops. So... The interesting thing that we saw when you look at history is that you have these little feedback loops that start to happen within a particular society. So you start to actually uh, improve. So, for example, if you look at the uh, agrarian or agricultural period, there are lots of little revolutions like the invention of money, uh, the invention of uh, the alphabet, numbers. So all these little happens and these little feedbacks, you then get to a point where the society changes and goes past a threshold and never goes back because there is a progress trap. You suddenly have uh, much more uh, population to support, much more wealth. If we step into the climate side and we look at feedback loops, what we're concerned about the human impact is that the impact can have unintended consequences. So, for example, when we put uh, too much greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we don't just have to worry about their warming effect. We have to worry about how they're melting the ice in Greenland. They're reducing the amount of sea ice because, of course, that has a feedback 
because less sunlight is reflected, so the Arctic suddenly becomes warmer, which then adds to the global warming. And so scientists are constantly in the lookout for these feedback loops, both positive, i.e. they make things worse, or negative, they actually hold back change, to actually try to understand the system as well as we can to provide some sort of prediction for the future. Now, that sounds like something relatively modern, that scientists look out for those uh, feedback loops. Uh, there's a, a conventional popular narrative that says that um, humans were oblivious and unconcerned about their impact on the environment until maybe the 20th century or 21st century awakening. I know you disagree with that, so tell us why. So I think it really depends on which part of history you look at and what do you mean by environmental impact. I have to say, I think it's only in the post-Second World War era that we've started to think about our impact on a global scale. And I think it's really only since the 1980s particularly things like the ozone hole and massive pollution events, that we've started to think, hang on, we can influence the whole of the world as a species. But if we go back, there are lots of beautiful accounts by scientists in the Victorian period who were concerned about environmental change in particular areas. They were worried about deforestation, on tropical islands that seems to change the climate and made it less productive. And there's lots of arguments about um, agriculture and the effects that it was having. So I think it really depends on whether you're looking at human impact on the smaller scale, which we all worry about because that's our local environment, or whether we move to this much more global and holistic approach, which I think is a much more recent thing. Because I think one of the reasons why we are excited by the concept of the Anthropocene is that it's much bigger than just climate change because we realize that we have so much impact on the planet, deforestation, plastics in the oceans, um, all of those changes, including climate change. And I think the most important thing is to try to get across to people that even though we're just individuals and we have a small effect, if you add those up by all the population, we have a massive impact on the planet. And actually, we need to change our way of thinking. We can't think of ourselves as individuals. We, think of, we must think of ourselves as a global species who basically has the control over the environmental destiny of our planet. And I think that's going to be a big shift in the 21st century that we suddenly have to realize that we're it. <laughs> we control basically the environment of the planet. And therefore, as a species, we need to actually think about how we actually influence that, whether positively or negatively. That's a, a big leap and a, and a difficult conceptual leap. Uh, I was uh, surprised to learn that as far back as uh, the 1600s, uh, someone wrote to King Charles, Charles II uh, recommending tree planting to reduce air pollution. So there was an uh, understanding that local actions impacted local the quality of local life. 
And certainly in recent floods in the United States, uh, I'm thinking particularly about Houston, Texas, a few years ago, that had the worst flood they had ever had. There was a great deal of writing about uh, how they paved over uh, the wetlands there uh, for development. It's a city that developed rapidly and, and intensely, and that prevented the natural drainage of uh, rainwater, and that's why they had such terrible floods. But it is a big leap between seeing an impact in your own own little universe um, and seeing the impact globally. But even if one can enlarge one's thinking to embrace the idea that what is done in, in southern Spain impacts uh, the Arctic ice cap. Um, uh, why do geologists believe that that change, that impact, requires a separate unit of time? So the key thing about separating geological units is, are there a distinct change in the biology or the environment? Now, many people, when they think about the Anthropocene, think about climate change, and this, this is their go-to thing. But what Simon yes. and I suggested was actually what was much more important was actually the movement of species around the planet, which is irreversible, which started to happen in the 16th century. So when Christopher Columbus accidentally crashed into the West Indies, which I think quite a few people think was a pretty bad idea. Um, what happened there, it cascaded a massive shift in biology. So there are so many organisms that uh, we took from the Americas, cassava, maize, all of which were moved into Europe and Asia. We then moved things like horses, pigs, cattle, and unfortunately, major diseases over to the Americas. And it's this mixing, which unfortunately still occurs today. We're all worried in many countries about invasive species. Uh, and I'll give you one classic example, because people say, well, hang on, we can reverse this, we can change this. If you go to North America and you dig up some soil, the majority of earthworms you're going to find there are European. The reason being is European earthworms have this trick, which is they sit in the soil, the leaves sit on the top, and they go, hmm, I'm hungry. So they basically burrow to the top, they grab some of that leaf litter, they drag it down and munch away. The American earthworms are a bit more laissez-faire. They still go, yeah, no, I'm just going to wait for it to rot. And so therefore, they get completely outcompeted. Can you imagine if we decided, right, we're going to repatriate all those evil European earthworms from Americas back to Europe? It would be impossible, and that's just earthworms. We then start thinking of bacteria, diseases, and all the other animals we've moved around. I mean, one of the big problems is that cattle are everywhere, black rats are everywhere, and so what we've done is we've created a supercontinent by shipping. And therefore, what we've done is any alien landing on the planet in a million years' time will look at the geological record and go, oh, whoa, look, here, suddenly, 
all the species became the same and became homogenized. And so that for us is the beginning of the Anthropocene. It's where the biology has been completely mixed up by humans. And actually, that's something we just can't ever reverse. And we'll be permanently in the geological record. Hmm. Well, couldn't one argue that that is part of the process of, uh, of evolution, natural evolution on this earth? As soon as humans migrated out of Africa, uh, they brought with them whatever they had, and there was an intermingling, and surely some species died, but also new species arose. Or am I missing something? No, not at all. I think what geologists do is they split up the geological timescale into meaningful chunks, which are useful for defining Earth history. And I think that key thing is when do things change? So, of course, a big boundary is the KT boundary at 65 million years ago when a meteorite hit the Earth and killed off all the dinosaur. Now, key thing there is dinosaurs before the change, no dinosaurs after. So I think what we're looking for in the geological record is a clear distinction between humans, part of the environment, and then humans moving all these species around in a massive way. And so it's not, again, it's just a moment in time. It's not going to actually uh, appropriate blame or anything like that. It's just to define when the world changed. And humans are incredibly good at moving things around that they want to. And also other organisms, you have to remember, lots of organisms have done really well out of humans because basically they've somehow attached themselves to this new species and gone, yeah, I'm going with it. Think about pigeons, dogs, cattle, pigs. They're doing incredibly well in some ways, having been spread, A, across all the world, and being uh, allowed to actually reproduce in vast numbers. So there are winners and losers. I think the big debate now is actually we are inadvertently, though, damaging the natural environment and damaging the biodiversity on the planet without meaning to. And that's actually making the planet less rich in species. And some argue meaning that things like zoonotic diseases like the pandemic we're in are easier to jump from wild animals into domestic animals or into humans, which is then another problem that humanity has to face. Is it uh, just that all this has happened inadvertently or while we were looking in a different direction? Or are there some fundamental beliefs that humans have or people in the West have that encourage the kinds of actions you're, we've been talking about that made the Anthropocene? I think there's two answers to that. I think the first answer is that we have an economic system and economic theories which do not count the environment. If you look at, say, uh, the last 50 years of uh, economics, it basically assumes that the environment is free. And therefore, it's free to dump things in there, it's free to use the resources, and there is no financial comeback from doing that. 
And I think what's really exciting at the moment is there are lots of new, exciting economists coming out and going, actually, that's not right. If we, we are going to actually cost in those externalities, i.e. the cost of clean air, clean water, uh, lack of pollution, a stable climate, we need to think about economics in a different way. But I think there's also a deeper, more fundamental issue which is the idea is as humans individually we feel rather small and insignificant and i have to say science really hasn't helped so if you go back the first thing is the copernicus revolution galileo they suddenly turned around to us humans and said well i'm really sorry earth's not that amazing center of the universe actually we're in the solar system and the sun is the center and then, of course, now cosmologists now tell us that our sun is a rather dull, small star uh, on the edge of a galaxy. And we are one ten to the power of 28 stars in the whole universe, uh, which makes us feel really small and insignificant. And then not to be outdone, the biologists come along and go, yes, you know that special place, you know, plants followed by animals, followed by man. And I apologize, they're Victorians. They were men. Uh, <laughs> angels and then God, we don't have that special place because Darwin turned around and said, oh, I'm really sorry. We're, we're just slightly smarter ape with not very much hair. Um, so we suddenly had 500 years of science that make us feel really insignificant and small in the world. But the Anthropocene uh, concept says, well, hang on. Now we are actually the most important thing on Earth. We control the environmental destiny of the planet and the evolutionary destiny of most of the organisms on the planet. So therefore, we are the most important thing on this planet, the only place that we know that life exists in the universe. And that's a complete philosophical shift in our mindset from being insignificant individuals so we can do what the hell we like because, look, nature's really big and we'll basically and take whatever we throw at it, to realizing that as a global species, we have a global impact, and therefore we need to actually make decisions about do we actually increase our impact and worry about the consequences later, or do we say, well, hang on, how do we actually make the world good for all of the humans and all of the life and make sure we have all the ecosystem services we need to actually function and keep modern society going? Well, that's really interesting it, because it sounds almost biblical. It, it, what you're saying is science has distracted us from the ancient idea uh, in the mythology of the Garden of Eden that man is meant to govern, manage, husband, uh, take care of the resources in in paradise on on earth, so it's a kind of full circle. Uh, but if there's so much hard evidence, and and actually quite a long scientific history, relatively speaking, uh, how do you explain the persistence of denial that human activity is responsible for contemporary climate change? Oh, the huge issue of Denial. So the problem with denial is it comes from people's background and sometimes their culture. Because 
it sometimes clashes with their worldview and particularly their economic view. And I think what is really important to unpick is the change in economic thinking that occurred basically in 1979 and 1980. So up until that point, after the Second World War, all the international institutions and governments realized after the Second World War that they had to regulate the international finance system. They didn't want the collapse of countries that occurred between the wars because that led to a world war. And so they realized that actually state intervention in a capitalist system worked to make sure that things functioned for the best for everybody. In 1979, a new breed of uh, economics came along, which was neoliberalism. And actually, the economists, I think, generally believed what they were preaching. And they said, look, up to now, we've basically been on our bicycle with the training wheels. Why don't we take the training wheels off and just let the markets do what they do best? You know, that will basically boost uh, production, produce much more money and lift everybody out of poverty. And so they said, right, let's go for it. And so they stripped away lots of regulations um, throughout uh, the world. And the interesting thing is that the IMF a couple of years ago came out with a statement that said the economic theories of the last couple of decades may have been a complete failure. Because what we realized is that, and the pandemic has really shown this, if you want the best for everybody and you want to actually have influence, you don't look to the markets. It's governments and policymakers that look after the population. So if we look at the actual um, classic sort of uh, pandemic, many companies are literally just turning around to governments and going, can you give us a handout, please, because we're going to collapse otherwise, as opposed to actually the market forces are the ones that are going to save us. So I think that distinct shift in economic thinking has been a problem. And that's actually driven a lot of the uh, exploitation of resources without any environmental uh, concept behind it. And this is why uh, I and Simon in our book say that we need a new revolution. We need to go to what we inverted commas called post-capitalism, but some other system, which allows us to actually think about the economic system so it benefits everybody and also benefits the environment which we all rely on and live within. Well, is that what you uh, meant in your book when you wrote about progress traps uh, and how the past 500 years of um, increased productivity, which has enhanced human health, wealth, and longevity enormously, uh, contains the seeds of its own destruction? The, I think the progress trap was two things. I think the first thing that we worry about, and actually I don't think we brought out in the book as much as we wanted to, and I think that if I ever write another book on this subject, I'm really going to focus on this, is that with each one of these revolutions, okay, and I'm not going to call it progress because of what I'm going to say, is that there are always winners and losers with each one of these steps. And actually, the losers usually greatly outnumber the winners. And they're usually indigenous people or the poorest in society. 
So, for example, if we look at, say, hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists, what happened was as agriculture took over, the hunter-gatherers were pushed further and further away from the best land. And actually today, the hunter-gatherers are actually living on some of the worst land because it's not good enough for uh, sort of uh, agriculture. And if you then look at, say, mercantile capitalism, there was huge losers there. Over 12 million Africans were transported from Africa to the Americas to work because they needed to produce crops to feed the growing population in Europe. And then if you look at the Industrial Revolution, it was great if you happened to be a factory owner, but awful if you happened to be a factory worker. So I think that we also need to take lessons from uh, history and say, in the next revolution, we have to take everybody with us. We can't leave indigenous people and the extremely poor behind when we move to this new beautiful nirvana, you know, this uh, ecotopia <laughs> with this incredible looking after our environment if we don't take everybody with us. And so I think we can use history to go, okay, lots of mistakes. How do we not do it in the future? If we look to history, though, we find some unusual and perhaps encouraging, you'll, you'll let me know, uh, uh, events. Uh, for example, back in the 18th century, the economist Thomas Malthus believed that overpopulation would lead to famine. The numbers at that time supported his projection that food production could not keep up with population growth. What he didn't foresee, though, was the Green Revolution uh, that and the improvement in agriculture that enabled the planet to support billions more people. Could something positive and unexpected like that alter the projected climate catastrophe? Oh, I love it. As a geographer, going back to Malthus. So the, the great thing about <laughs> Malthus is I don't think he, he didn't understand how inventive humans are. So you mentioned the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution, absolutely brilliant, driven by uh, technology and new plants as well as a new style of farming. Um, what it means is today, according to the World Food Organization, we produce enough food to feed 11 billion people. Okay? Now, we only have 7.8 billion people on the planet and we also have 825 million people that go to bed feeling hungry every night. So the Green Revolution has worked. We have all this food, but we don't have the economic systems or the social systems to make sure that everybody in the world gets their fair share of food. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I don't think that Malthus realized what was the major control over human population growth. And the really interesting thing is population has grown, has doubled since the 1950s because of the Green Revolution, because of the industrialization of medicine, the production of vaccines completely changed the mortality rate around the world. But the most important thing that we found in every single country to control population is women's education. So if you educate women up to secondary school level or above, 
they take control of their fertility, they understand the consequences of having children too close together, and actually fertility rates drop markedly. And so if you think about it, we are the only species ever to actually self-control our population. Most other species are controlled by predators or a lack of food. We don't have those limits. We are self-limiting because half the population, the female population, is actually saying, no, I'm deciding I'm only going to have two or three children. And that's something that is exciting because as long as we educate women around the world and we provide a family planning if they require it, then we're hoping that our population on the planet will peak at about 9.8 billion people by 2050. And interestingly enough, the projections suggest that it might even drop off then. So this whole population explosion that we were deeply worried about in the 1970s isn't actually going to happen, but we are still going to have perhaps another 2 billion people on the planet in the next 30 years that we have to feed, look after, and actually occupy in some shape or form. Yes, and that seems to be good from a geological and, uh, and climate point of view. On a smaller level, though, the uh, reduction in, in reproduction rates in Western countries, we see it in, uh, well, and we see it in, in the East as well, China, Japan, and increasingly in Europe, um, has led to a failure or a lack of younger productive workers and carers and a population that is very old and in need of care, which draws more migration uh, and brings us back to the original uh, challenge you mentioned about global migration. So it is really a, a complicated uh, equation. Every action has multiple consequences, not always foreseen. Uh, but it, uh, finally, let's let's imagine that world leaders are listening to this podcast. What would you urge them to do collectively first to change the current course that the Earth is on? I think the first thing is that they need to really sit down, and I'm hoping uh, in 2021 at the Glasgow COP26, the climate negotiations, that the world leaders will start to shift the global economy away from fossil fuels and actually start us on the path to net carbon zero, which we need to hit by 2050 if we are to contain climate change. So I think that's the first thing we need to do. I think the second thing that world leaders need to consider is how do you actually improve people's livelihoods within your country as well as the world? So we have lots of countries that have extreme inequality. The difference between the very richest and the very poor is huge. And it's not a lack of money because if you just redistributed it, you could actually completely change how people live. And so I think there's a real issue that people have to deal with, which is how do you, as a politician and a policymaker in your country, make your country uh, basically 
more equitable, fairer, and you look after the very uh, the most vulnerable and the poorest in your society. Because otherwise, what is government there for? Well, that's certainly correct. The government is there to protect the borders and support its citizens. And uh, we need more of the latter. No question about that. Well, Mark, you've uh, made a passionate and erudite case and given us a great deal to think about. Uh, Before you go, tell us what you're working on now. So because of the focus now on climate change, particularly in the next 12 months as uh, world leaders start to negotiate, what I'm working on is how different systems can be used. How can we actually help the corporates actually do the right thing? So one of the things that we're working on now is a lot of companies are desperate to do the right thing. So they are reducing their carbon footprint as fast as they can. But because of the infrastructure we currently have, there's some carbon that they just can't get rid of. There's some greenhouse gas emissions they can't get rid of. So they want to offset it. So they want to actually pay money, like the airlines, like even BP, and they want to be able to pay other places to reforest an area or to actually protect forest, or to actually put in lots of new renewable electricity. And so what I'm working on now with a fantastic team at Trove Research is how do we make that system governed well and actually make it work? And I think that's really important because the the problem is that we all have fantastic ideas. There's all brilliant ideas out there, but actually it comes down to something really boring, which is, How can you practically make sure these things work, make sure that they're governed well, make sure people aren't taking advantage? And actually, when Microsoft say, I've just bought a ton of CO2, actually, we can verify that Microsoft have bought a ton of CO2 that's been taken out of the atmosphere by a forest in country X. And that's what I'm working on now, is trying to actually help corporates actually develop their green agenda in the best and the most transparent way possible. That's really important work. I I thank you for your important work and for being on the show today. Thank you, Renee. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Bye-bye now.